Hello and welcome to Women Decode STEM and I am your host Neha Savanu. In this podcast I talk to women in science, engineering, technology and mathematics fields. We will be discussing career paths, gender equality and mentorship. Dr. Shona Pandya is a scientist astronaut candidate with Project Possum, physician, aquanaut, speaker, martial artist, advanced diver, skydiver, pilot in training, VP immersive medicine with luxonic technologies and fellow of the Explorers Club. With the numerous achievements, Dr. Shona Pandya has proved that if you believe in your dreams and work hard towards it, you can achieve anything. Today's talk with her is going to leave each and every one of you inspired. Hi Dr. Shona, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So before we deep dive into the exciting topics, I just want to address that you have such a diverse skill set. So can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your educational background? Yeah, sure. So for those who don't know me, um, my name is Dr. Shana Pandya. I'm a physician, scientist, astronaut candidate, aquanaut speaker, VP of immersive medicine at Luxonic Technologies, skydiver, martial artist, pilot in training, and scuba diver. So um, that's a lot, but I am happy to talk about my um, my path to get here, my educational journey. So I did my BSc in Honours Neuroscience at the University of Alberta. Um, and that in and of itself is a story because as a kid, I always wanted to be an astronaut. Um, and I was inspired by Dr. Roberta Bondar, the first female physician, Canadian physician in space. Um, and she had a background in neuro-ophthalmology and neurology. So that's actually what inspired me to pursue neuroscience. Um, and I knew my path after that was to, like her, become a physician. So I always had my eye on medical school. And when the time came to apply for medical school, I knew I needed to have a backup plan because medicine was getting extremely competitive and I knew excellent candidates who weren't even getting interviews. So I looked at um, something that I was equally passionate about, that I would be excited to do for the year, um, that I wouldn't spend my year, you know, wishing that I had gone to medical school instead. And so I heard of something called the International Space University, where you can do your master's. Um, and so I applied to both programs in the same year. And to my surprise, I got into both. And I was, um, you know, not ready to quite give up on my space dream. And so I asked for my medical school for a deferral. was lucky enough to be granted that deferral. So I pursued my master's at the year-long master's at the International Space University in Strasbourg, France. And it was like a year at Starfleet Academy. It was, you know, it's very, very international, very interdisciplinary. And the school's philosophy is international, intercultural, interdisciplinary. In my year, we had 50 students from 31 countries. Um, you know, we worked on everything from satellite design to policy and law. I interned at the European Astronaut Center's Crew Medical Support Office. So that's a division of the European Space Agency. And before long, I came to medical school, um, graduated, started off in a neurosurgical residency before um, realizing that I really, again, wasn't quite ready to give up on the space stream and transferred to general practice where I currently um, practice in family medicine, emergency um, medicine, as well as women's health. Wow. 
That is a long resume, but yeah, that's really exciting. So can you tell us a little bit about how space medicine is different from the regular practice of medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. And so the to back up a little bit, I often get asked, you know, how is how is space medicine even a specialty? And um, when we think about the spaceflight environment, um, it's quite a hostile environment between the effect of zero gravity or microgravity on our bones, our muscles, our cardiovascular system, our immune system, our neurological system, um, the effect of radiation, the effect on behavioral health of being away from um, home for such a long time in an isolated, confined environment, the effect of um, on our circadian rhythms of experiencing 16 sunrises and sunsets every 90 minutes. Uh, so there's, there's quite a lot. And the short answer is that space is trying to kill you. So, um, you know, there's, there's quite a need to have a specialized field of medicine where we look at maintaining astronaut health. And the, the biggest um, cornerstone of this field is preventative medicine. Because it's such a hostile environment, if you can look out for, identify risks, mitigate them before they even become an issue, then you're well ahead of the curve. And that starts with astronaut selection. So, you know, that's one of the main mainstays of space medicine. And then where we run into the biggest differences, perhaps, other than the environment from terrestrial medicine is how we pack for space. So it's very, very expensive to send um, anything to space. Prior to the advent of the commercial space industry, the, the commonly quoted figure was 10,000 US dollars per kilogram to launch something to space when you factor in the launch costs and rocket fuel and personnel and mission planning and all of those things. So when you're packing, you have to be very judicious and very selective about what you bring with you. And it's called the backpacking problem. Because if you imagine when you are um, packing for a camping trip away uh, for a weekend, say, and you only decide to bring a backpack, then every ounce of space that you have becomes critical. And for everything that you pack into that backpack means you're selecting out something else. So translating that to space medicine, you're constrained by mass, you're constrained by volume, um, by power usage, by how much space is this thing going to take up when it, if it no longer becomes in use, um, how easy it is to use, um, how radiation resistant it is, um, and its overall cost. So at the end of the day, the drive to keep humans healthy in space doesn't change, but how we go about doing it does. Um, now talking about the current situation, you're a practicing physician and you've been serving on several COVID initiatives. So how has your experience been so far? Do you want to share some learnings with us? Yeah, um, so the year 2020 has turned out to be a very unusual one, I think, for every seven billion of us on this planet. Definitely my own life has been very different, um, mainly because of travel restrictions. In, 20, in 2019, for comparison, um, I was on average at home for maybe three or four days a month. Um, due to travel. So all of that has changed for me in 2020. Practically speaking, as a physician, um, there have been so many lessons learned. And on top of that, um, we may get to talking about this a little later in the podcast, I also have extensive experience in analog environments or isolated and confined extreme environments. 
you know, the lessons learned about teamwork and resilience um, really have become important during this pandemic. So to get into specifics, um, you know, the things that we take for granted um, have really become important to me to appreciate and be grateful for. So at the height of the pandemic, so for those of your viewers who don't know, I'm located in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, when I'm not traveling. Um, at the height of the pandemic, while we were never really overwhelmed, everything was shut down. Um, and that means that all of my patient visits were telehealth. And so when you're trying to diagnose um, a rash over the phone, when you're trying to diagnose a swollen joint over the phone, you know, you really realize how much truth there is to the adage, a picture is worth a thousand words. So things like that, things like going to the gym every day that, you know, you take for granted, um, certainly become grateful for, um, you know, being able to see patients in person. The other part of it is the lessons learned from these austere environments. Um, so for those who don't know, I have spent time, I've done two um, rotations at the Mars Desert Research Station in the Utah desert. So that's a simulated Mars base. It's like real life on fake Mars. Um, and you're essentially living um, as if you were a crew on Mars. As if you have to go out of your habitat, you have to suit up. You're living with your crew of however many people. Um, so I've done that both as a medical officer as well as a commander. And then at the end of last year, I also did a five-day underwater aquanautic science mission in an underwater habitat called the Jules Undersea Lodge. Um, and it was called the Neptune Mission, which stands for Nautical Experiments in Physiology, Technology, and Underwater Exploration. Um, and the lessons you learn um, from living in such an environment, um, your crew is your family and um, how that translates into the COVID pandemic is your family becomes your crew. You have to be very mission oriented, oriented on your goals, whether you're talking about life underwater or you know, life in confinement with your family. And then just lessons learned about psychological resilience or mental fortitude or staying strong and realizing, you know, I've long been a proponent of the, the foundations of resilience and how they play the, the key components and how they play into our overall resilience. But they've really come into play this pandemic. And those factors are having a strong social support network, having impulse control, positive self-talk, um, mental rehearsal, um, as well as breaking things down. So the lessons from both medicine as well as the extreme environment world have really, you know, come into play and become very, very real during this pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now shifting gears a little bit and talking about space and space medicine in particular. In the past, you interned at NASA. So mm -hmm. do you want to share that experience with us? Yes. Like the International Space University, this is one of those, those institutions that was always on my wish list or my, my goals map of wanting to do. And I'd been aware of this opportunity for a very long time, since pretty much the first year I got into university. Um, and it was, it was an aerospace medical elective, specifically geared towards um, final year medical students or residents. So it, I waited a very long time. I waited essentially 10 years. I was qualified for this experience. And um, the way it worked is you would be sponsored and funded by the Canadian Space Agency to go down to NASA and learn about space medicine, you know, as well as contribute to a research project of your own related to that field. And it was the most fun you could possibly ever have in medicine. It was like, Disneyland for space medicine nerds and you know that time was just 
so enlightening and rewarding. Um, so this was down in 2012 when um, the Canadian astronauts were, were training down there. And what the Canadian Space Agency had told us at the time that we were preparing to go down to, to NASA Johnson Space Center in the pre-brief is that they told us that they would try to get the Canadian astronauts who were training down there to liaise with us. And, you know, it's an exciting thought, but re realistically you're thinking to yourself, they're astronauts and they have better things to do than, you know, make time for a simple medical student. My very first day, uh, on on base, I got a call in my office and I immediately put that person on hold because I lost my passport actually at the same time and I was a little bit flustered over that. And then I realized he had said his name was Colonel Chris Hadfield. So <laughs> he was training to, the, the Canadian astronaut, he was training to be commander of the space station at that time. So wow, okay. it's not like he didn't have other things to do. You know, he made time to meet up with myself for coffee along with the other medical student, um, the other astronauts, uh, Jeremy Hansen, um, David Saint-Jacques, ESA astronaut at Samantha Cristoforetti, mm -hmm. um, retired NASA astronaut Scott Parasinski. They all made time and it was, they were just such wonderful, lovely people. You know, it really hammered home to me the value um, and the duty that we have to pay it forward in our careers. And, you know, that lesson was just, so humbling um, and just, you know, so inspirational. And it, it's a very important lesson for me today to make time for the next generation um, who are at the start of their careers um, to invest time in them. And I think it's an important message to anyone, regardless of the stage of your career, is that regardless of where you think you are or how early stage you think you are, um, somebody looks up to you. You are a role model for someone. And even, you know, if you're in 10th grade, you know, someone in ninth grade is looking up to you. If you're in 12th grade, one of the 10th graders is looking up to you as, as a role model. And so you always have something to offer um, by way of mentorship to, you know, to someone who looks up to you. Yeah, that is such a great message. Um, and I think you're doing that every single day with your speaking initiatives or your teaching initiatives. So thank you for that. Thank you. So you're currently a scientist astronaut candidate at Project Possum. So can you shed some light on what Project Possum is? Yeah, sure. So um, for anyone who follows the space world and from even the podcast so far, you might be aware in, in space we use a lot of acronyms and Project POSSUM is no different. So POSSUM stands for Polar Suborbital Science of the Upper Mesosphere um, and is also now part of a larger organization called the International Institute of Astronautical Sciences. Um, so as a scientist astronaut candidate, I have gone through the ground school and the initial mandate of this program was to learn about the aeronomy or the science of our upper mesosphere, specifically studying noctilucent clouds, which is thought to be a relatively new type of cloud related to climate change um, formed by byproducts of greenhouse gas breakdown. So that was the initial mandate of the program. And, you know, there's just so much that the world of citizen scientist astronautics has to offer that the program has expanded tremendously in the five years since I've been involved. And so um, in addition to being a scientist astronaut candidate, um, so we do really cool things. We test um, a specific kind of spacesuit called an IVA spacesuit that stands for intervehicular activity. Um, and it's kind of like your portable 
spacecraft inside a spacecraft. So if there's an emergency, like a slow onset decompression where you lose atmosphere in your, in your spaceship, then you have a backup portable spacecraft and life support system by way of your IVA spacesuit. So I have been lucky enough to test this spacesuit in zero gravity on parabolic flight campaigns. So for those who don't know, parabolic flight is where you can simulate zero gravity uh, without going to space. Um, you just fly in a, in a normal aircraft. At, for us, we fly at 17,000 feet. And you just form a parabola or upside down U-shaped trajectory. And in falling at the same rate as, as your plane, you create this 20 second period of zero gravity or microgravity. We've tested it in water um, simulated crash landing scenarios. Um, I am now the chief instructor of the operational space medicine course. And I'm the director of the IIAS Possum Space Medicine Group. So there's, there's a lot that keeps me busy, um, but it's just so incredible to wake up as an adult and realize that you can be living your dreams in in space and in medicine and in technology development as well as exploration. So it's it's busy, but it's it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. So um, I just want to understand, like, how is the research being done at Project Possum uh, helpful uh, to space or humankind? Sure. Yeah. So to become a part of Project Possum you apply um, to the initial ground school and your the background requirements are to have a degree in a STEM field, mm -hmm. your scuba diving license, and ideally your pilot's license, although it's a nice to have, not a need to have, as well as obviously why you want to apply to the program. From there, you learn about the basic science around aeronomy and noctilucent clouds, and then you participate in the ground school, which includes uh, further in-classroom components, as well as experiencing things you might actually experience if you were to take a suborbital vehicle for a mission to study these clouds. So that includes aerobatic flight, where you are a passenger in a craft that simulates um, altered G environments, increased G environments, um, you fly the mission profile in a suborbital vehicle simulator. Um, and so that's the basic ground school portion of Project Possum. And um, the idea is you do learn about the, the aeronomy and the noctilucent cloud science and are able to help contribute to, to that science as a citizen scientist. Um, once you finish that ground school, you are qualified to apply for and be and attend and take part in any other course whether it's you know the microgravity campaign we just talked about my operational space medicine class um, or a myriad of other classes that we offer anything from orbital mechanics to spaceflight physiology to space planetary geology so so it's it's there's a lot there um, and then for, for anyone who may not meet the basic requirements, so for example, has an arts degree instead of a STEM degree, they can apply to the alternate stream called Possum Academy and also become part of the Possum stream in that way. And, you know, this is a very condensed version. So for anyone out there who wants to know more, simply go to projectpossum.org to, to learn more about the programs. Um, so I also read about Project Possum making it more accessible for young women and girls. Do you want to talk about these initiatives? Yeah, for sure. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, one initiative that I forgot to talk about is the Possum 13. So 
Possum 13 is named in homage to the Mercury 13, which represented a group of 13 women during the Mercury era who were selected by flight, NASA flight surgeon William Lovelace to, to go through the same testing that the Mercury 7 had gone through and to pretty much prove that women were just as capable as, as men of becoming astronauts. And these women in all cases performed just as well, if not better than the, the Mercury candidates. Um, so the name Possum 13 is an homage to those 13 pioneers in aerospace. And so our organization is dedicated to serving as global ambassadors for citizen science and opportunities in space and space exploration, um, especially to, to young people, particularly underrepresented populations, including women. Um, so I am a Possum 13 ambassador, as well as the chair for strategic initiatives for this organization. We are entering our second year of existence. And since inception, we have already run one successful microgravity campaign competition for young women, um, age 13 to 17 where we have teams led by women, composed of women um, from all over the world, submit their scientific payloads. They want to fly in a parabolic flight. We flew our first winner from Colombia last year, and we're currently working with teams to create a payload for the second year's competition. So we do have a commitment to helping promote space and careers in space to, to this population. Fantastic. That's good to know. You briefly mentioned about this earlier, about this uh, Mars Desert Research Station mission that you were a part of, um, and you also led one of the teams as a commander. Do you want to share your experience on being in a different environment, such as the MDRs? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you said, we chatted about it a little bit earlier, but um, it's such a valuable experience. And so to back up a bit, when we talk about places like the MDRS, we refer to them collectively as analog environments. And so they're called analog environments because they're analogous in some way, shape or form to the spaceflight environment. So even parabolic flight is an analog environment because it re replicates the zero G aspect of the spaceflight environment. Um, so the MDRS, for example, replicates the isolated and confined extreme aspect of the spaceflight environment. And it really does test your ability to work as a team, to be resourceful, to deal with problems as they come up, to use the resources and the experience you have at your disposal, to kind of be a space MacGyver and figure out how to deal with problems on the fly, and to do so in a way that always keep your mission objectives as well as safety, um, science and outreach in mind. And so I've done this twice. Um, my first mission was in 2018. My most recent, recent mission was in January of this year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's just, you learn so much about teamwork, about yourself, about these harsh environments, and you get to do it in the luxury of this beautiful alien environment in the middle of the Utah desert that may as well be Mars. You're, you're just surrounded by these stunning geological landscapes with red and hues of orange and brown and white and just spread as far as the eye can see. And it's just these stunning vistas. Um, and you get to explore these. You get to go out in your in your simulated spacesuit um, and your your simulated extravehicular activity EVA spacesuit on your rover um, and explore and 
platform geology and science, and it's it's incredible. Some of the, the relationships I've formed, some of the teammates um, I've met have essentially become family. We keep in touch for nearly every day, and it's you know it's it's such a character building thing to do. So you know my experiences have been just uh, out of this world, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it sounds incredible and always. So you also spoke about the Neptune mission and the setting is uh, totally different. Like one is in the desert and the other one is underwater. So how both of these missions different or how is your experience different in these two situations? Yeah, so Neptune, you know, it's hard to say that I have a favorite mission because I think I come out of every mission, um, whether it's Mars or Neptune or Possum, um, saying that it's my favorite mission. Um, Neptune was really, really special for a variety of reasons. So it's always been on my, my list to do an underwater analog in, environment mission, mm-hmm. um, to become an aquanaut and to just do a lot of really good science. There's only a handful of underwater research habitats and laboratories in the world. And the Jules Undersea Lodge is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Aquarius Reef Base, just 13 miles away, is the home of NASA's NEMO, or NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations um, Base. And both have been on my bucket list for a very long time. Um, so these are both in the Florida Keys, and they, they are a different type of analog environment, but also replicate that isolated and confined, remote, extreme environment. And so with the Jules Undersea Lodge, we were 20 feet underwater to go out and do any type of exploration. Your your spacesuit in this type of environment is essentially your dive gear because obviously you need to be able to breathe underwater. Or this mission was was extremely um rewarding because of the work we put into it. It was very, very citizen scientists and very self-driven. One of my initial crewmates from my 2018 MDRS mission, we became really good friends and we started talking about further exploration opportunities. And then, you know, this evolved organically. We talked to, to three other teammates who we got on with very well. And we conceived of the science, which consisted of physiology, cognitive testing, psychology, sleep studies, you know, that we performed with with almost military-like discipline throughout every day of the mission. And um, we're writing up the results now. And, you know, it, it was a lot of work. It was the better part of a year, but to do it with such an awesome team, <laughs> to live underwater for five days, it was incredible. So it was, it was just, it, it always brings up fond memories. Um, and, you know, this is another set subset of people that I keep in touch with nearly daily. Outside of your work as a citizen scientist and a physician, I know that you have an entrepreneurial streak and your latest uh, involvement is with Luxonic Technologies. Do you want to talk about what you do there and what the company is doing as a whole? Yeah, for sure. So I'm the VP of Immersive Medicine with Luxonic Technologies. We are a Canadian company. We joke internally that we're a company of unapologetic do-gooders. Um, and basically our mandate is to use technology for good, um, specifically immersive technology. So the reason I was um, enlisted and came to this company actually starts with the Neptune mission because um, one of our crewmates had you know, a connection with the, the founder of that company. We chatted further and we talked about testing their, their VR radiology suite underwater. Um, and then 
just two days later after that mission, I had a parabolic flight campaign. So we tested that technology in zero gravity. And so what this this company does is immersive technologies for medical education. And then the space aspect is related to developing virtual reality, um, augmented reality, and immersive medical um, education, procedural guidance, and just-in-time training for deep space missions. So simply put, my mission is to help develop a medical care and education module in a virtual reality headset. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's, it's very cool that I get to develop things for space. Um, and then speaking to what the company does as a whole. So developing virtual reality education for space is a very small part of what we do. Um, we develop virtual reality training modules for medical healthcare professionals, whether they're paramedics, nurses, doctors, medical students, residents. Um, and we also do the same with immersive 360 video. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a, a YouTube-like platform specifically dedicated to medical education for 360 video, as well as um, we're also working on the similar technologies in augmented reality. So um, that's a lot, but it's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to be helping develop and create the future of space medicine, as well as um, medicine here on Earth. That's incredible. So the last question I have for you is with your... I should say, vast amount of experience and incredible work that you're doing. Uh, do you have any advice for women to reach leadership positions in whichever field they're in? Yeah, absolutely. So I like often say that having a dream without a plan to get there is only a dream. But when you create a blueprint for yourself, when you create a stepwise progression to get there, then it becomes a goal. So set goals um, and don't limit yourself as to where your goals might be limited. Uh, and then work really, really, really hard to get there. You know, we're all born with equal amounts of talent, but a work ethic takes zero talent. Um, develop the hardest work ethic you can, the strongest work ethic you can of, of anyone you know. And that will take you very, very far. Don't be afraid of what other people say. You know, no one has the right to tell you that you're, you're not experienced enough, that you're not this enough, that you're not that enough. Set a goal, work hard, and then act like you belong there because you do. Thank you so much. That is very inspiring. To end today's talk, we have a last section that is the rapid fire round. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. Okay. Your first question. What is your dream job? <laughs> astronaut um your favorite book oh gosh um chris hadfield's an astronaut's guide to earth wow okay uh last question one advice you'd give your younger self discipline is so 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 important and never forget the importance of, of self-discipline wonderful thank you so much dr shauna for joining us today and inspiring us thank you so much for having me that is it for today's episode this marks the end of season one of Women Decode STEM. I would like to thank each and every one of our listeners and guests for showing so much love and making this a successful season. In season two, we are bringing you conversations with extraordinary women entrepreneurs in STEM fields. They're going to be sharing their unique stories and how with their undeterred motivation and passion, they are bringing their vision to life. I'm going to be back after a short break, but you can keep in touch with me on social media platforms. Until then, take care and bye.